Hip Hop at 50, An Elegy by Jelani Cobb Three things of note to a particular slice of American culture occurred in recent weeks. On February 5, the Grammy Awards, which were initially reluctant to embrace the genre of hip-hop, recognized the 50th anniversary of its existence. To the extent that something as complex and sprawling as a musical genre can find a single point of origin, hip-hop was born in the summer of 1973 at a fabled party thrown by DJ Cool Herc at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx. Then, on March 3, the catalogue of De La Soul, a cornerstone group whose work helped define the music's golden era but has long been trapped in a skein of legal complications, finally became available on streaming services. The celebration of that development was bittersweet, though, because just a couple of weeks earlier Dave Jolie-Kerr, one of the group's three founding members, who rapped under the name Trigoy the Dove, had died of congestive heart failure at the age of 54. There is, in this world, an ambivalent space reserved for revolutionaries who die in their beds and rappers who die of natural causes. From hip-hop's inception, what has distinguished it from other forms of youth culture was its certain awareness of mortality. Rock music, for instance, mourns a group of heroes who died at 27, Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain. But part of the resonance of those deaths is that they came as a shock and even acquired an aura of romance that hip-hop could never indulge. Their deaths reflected inner turmoil, most during a time of war and social violence, but the violence was not primarily directed at them. That's not the case with hip-hop, an art form crafted in places where it was not unheard of for 27-year-olds to perish. Here was an art form largely pioneered and dominated by the demographic that is most likely to die as a result of violence in this country, young black men. Sign up for the daily. Receive the best of the New Yorker every day in your inbox. Email address. By signing up, you agree to our user agreement and privacy policy and cookie statement. The year of Cool Herc's party, there were nearly 1,600 homicides in New York City, a disproportionate number of those killed were black and brown, and a disproportionate number of them died in neighborhoods like the one where hip-hop drew its first breaths. This was the New York of Taxi Driver and Death Wish, the New York of the untouchable drug hustler Nicky Barnes, and the morose sludge of a metropolis sliding into decay. In the beginning, hip-hop mostly featured light-hearted party fare and braggadocio, but, in a comparatively short period of time, it began focusing on weightier social themes. In 1982, just a few years into the history of commercially produced and recorded hip-hop, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five released the message, a parable of ghetto life that concludes with the preordained death of its subject and the haunting final line, now your eyes sing the sad, sad song slash of how you live so fast and die so young. That theme only grew as hip-hop increased in popularity and as the lives of its practitioners began to increasingly mirror the stories they told. A partial list of the deceased would include Scott LaRock, fatally shot in 1987, when he was 25, Big L and Freaky Taff, both murdered in 1999, at 24 and 27, respectively, Jam Master J, shot in his studio at age 37, in 2002, Soldier Slim, who was 26 when he died, the following year, XXXTentacion, who was fatally shot at age 20 in 2018 during an attempted robbery, Nipsey Hussle, killed in 2019, at age 33, Pop Smoke, also killed during an attempted robbery, in 2020, when he was 20, and Takeoff, killed last November, in a gambling dispute, at age 28.
In the 1990s, the violent deaths of Tupac Shakur, at 25, and the notorious B.I.G., at 24, cemented a pantheon that endures to this day, their images adorning murals, websites, and t-shirts, in a kind of Che Guevara-esque cult of the iconically dead. It now seems quaint that the perspectives of people, particularly people of color born between 1965 and 1980, were once so bound up with the music, ideas, and attitudes that derived from that culture that they were referred to as the hip-hop generation. But at the time it made a certain sense. More than any other platform or outlet, hip-hop conveyed the frustrations, hopes, ambitions, and fears of a set of people who came of age amid the scourges of crack and AIDS and the generally barren social landscape of the 1980s. And, as with any generation of young people, their growing understanding of the world around them inevitably highlighted the failures of the generation that preceded them, some of which were more vividly revealed than others. On a summer night, when I was eight or nine, a man was shot dead on the street where my family lived, in Hollis, Queens. He staggered for a few feet and collapsed in front of our house. My parents admonished me and my siblings to stay away from the windows. They recognized immediately that their attempt to insulate the family from that level of violence by moving from Harlem to Queens a decade earlier had failed. By the time I managed to peek through the curtains, someone had covered the body with a sheet. The police ran tape from the tree in front of our house to a nearby telephone pole, signaling that what moments earlier had been our front yard was now a crime scene. My father, worried about my teenage brother, who had left the house not long before, ventured out to the street. A cop lifted the sheet, and my father stared at the dead man for a minute before shaking his head and walking back inside. Sideburns, he said to my mother. The dead man had long sideburns, my brother did not. That was the first time I had seen a victim of a fatal shooting, but it was not the last. And I came to recognize that my experience was not unique, a wide swath of my generation was witnessing similar scenes in violence-wracked communities across the nation. In college, a classmate from the Bronx told me about a time in high school when he saw a man shot on the street and how the victim insisted on taking his shirt off, tormented by the heat of the bullets in his torso. Another friend said that, when he was seven, he'd seen a man shot dead on 84th Street, between Hoover and Vermont, in Los Angeles. The reality of those memories was reflected most indelibly in the film Boys and the Hood, from 1991, which opens with a group of boys happening upon a young, black, murder victim on their way to school, an event that terribly foreshadows their own futures in south-central Los Angeles. Hip-hop came of age as the voice of people living through the most violent stretch of the 20th century in American cities, and the scar tissue was easily discerned. By 1990, the point at which hip-hop had fully emerged as a cultural force across the nation, the pinnacle of what became known as its golden era, New York City had reached a record number of homicides, more than 2,200 that year alone. Los Angeles witnessed a peak of more than 2,500 killings in 1992, and there were staggering per capita homicide rates in Washington, D.C., Chicago, Detroit, and other cities. In 1990, Ice Cube released Dead Homies, a haunting tribute to the fallen, which includes the line I still hear the screams from his mother slash as my nigga lay dead in the gutter. He closes the song urging his listeners to take a moment to reflect on their own slain friends, a request that implicitly conveyed how many could relate to the experience. Two years later, A Tribe Called Quest released a remix for the song scenario that featured four guest rappers. 
Busta Rhymes opened the track by explaining that, of the seven collaborators, there were six rappers in physical form, one which is in spiritual essence. In the time between first recording the remix and its release, MC Hood had been shot in the head outside the Harlem group home where he had lived. The critic Rob Marriott pointed out in those years that the roots of the hypermasculinity that dominated hip-hop culture lay in the astounding physical vulnerability of the people creating it. The bravado, the contempt, and the veneer of stoicism were all strategically worn masks meant to camouflage their fears and their ultimate powerlessness to change the circumstances that reliably produced such a vast toll of needless deaths, including, quite likely, their own. Yet the very prominence of this theme makes the confluence of hip-hop's mid-century mark and Dave Jolie Kerr's death all the more unsettling. De La Soul's work is defined by its subversive wit and creativity, Jolie Kerr chose the name Trigoy the Dove in an attempt to set himself apart from the superficial aggression that had defined so much of the genre even by the time De La Soul emerged, in 1989. But the music that so profoundly articulated the tragedy of premature death at 20 is far less vocal on the subject of premature death at 50. It was easy to draw the parallels between the artists gunned down in the streets and the indexes of violence affecting black and brown communities. Tupac's death resonated precisely because the circumstances under which it occurred, in 1996, were so familiar. It's less common, though, to sketch the connections between Sean Price, the Brooklyn-bred rapper who died in his sleep at age 43, and the disparities of health, healthcare, and longevity that impact those same communities. There's a sense that we have reached the far side of some cruel distribution curve. The memories of those who are cold are increasingly paired with those who have simply succumbed. Homicide remains the leading cause of death for black men aged 44 and younger in this country. But middle age is dominated by a statistical minefield of health hazards, black people have significantly higher incidences of high blood pressure than whites or Hispanics, and are less likely to have their blood pressure under control, a situation compounded by unequal access to health care along racial lines. Similar disparities exist in heart disease and diabetes. Black women have a lower incidence rate of breast cancer than white women, but are much more likely to die of it. Racial life expectancy gaps have narrowed dramatically, driven mostly by the way that COVID-19 and the opioid crisis have reduced white life expectancy. But life expectancy is still lower for black men than for any other demographic group. In 2018, the year the rapper Fonte turned 40, he released a song titled Expensive Jeans, which includes a line that could be the bookend to the concluding lines of the message, our biggest fear was shots and armed robberies slash now the biggest fear is the clock and oncology. The hip-hop generation, in the places where it was born, is still dying younger than it should, just more subtly, more quietly, and in ways that are less likely to inspire public vigils and memorial t-shirts. In January, the Photographiska Museum in Manhattan launched Hip-Hop, Conscious, Unconscious, a photographic survey of how hip-hop has evolved since the days of Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash. It features many of the artists who perished at the hands of violent antagonists, but also a not insignificant number who succumbed in more recent years to the elastic category of natural causes. That's another growing canon, which includes Fife Dog, a founding member of a tribe called Quest, who died in 2016, at 45, from complications of diabetes, Bushwick Bill, who succumbed to pancreatic cancer at age 52, in 2019, Biz Markey, who died at 57, from complications of type 2 diabetes, and the Kangal Kid, who died of colon cancer at age 55, in 2021. 
On that list, too, are Hurricane G, who was 52 when she died of lung cancer, in 2022, and Coolio, who suffered a fatal heart attack the same year, at age 59. Also last year, DJ Kaysley, whose roots in the culture go all the way back to its early years in the Bronx, died of COVID-19. If the COVID-19 pandemic taught us anything, it is that natural causes is a euphemism and that environmental risks cluster in the same places where other societal shortcomings do. John Singleton, who wrote and directed Boys and the Hood, died in 2019 from complications stemming from a stroke. He was 51. 50 years is scarcely a blink in the life of a culture, but it can be an actual lifetime for human beings. Half a century in the unlikely, inspiring, and unpredictable story of how invisible kids from forgotten precincts crafted art that defined an era remains worth telling. But 50 years is also just long enough to recognize the failures that we will bequeath to the generation that is now just finding its voice. People are born and they die. The fervently whispered hope, the ambient prayer inside everything hip-hop has ever been or said or left unsaid, is that, maybe, in some distant and better world, those two things can happen just a little further apart. Diamond Suit